If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity. And it's available now wherever fine books are sold. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. August 12, 1981. August 12, 1981. That was the day IBM released the IBM PC. And, and who could have imagined like what that would lead to? Who would have ever even thought from that vantage point of, of our world today from that? Who could have imagined that eventually you would have one on every desktop and then they would all be connected? And that, that through that connection, trillions, trillions of dollars of wealth would be created. All the companies you know that, that, that you see in the news every day from eBay to Amazon to Google to Baidu to Alibaba to all of them, all of them have, have in one way or the other have it as the seed of their genesis that moment, that April, I'm sorry, that August the 12th, 1981. Now, the interesting thing about that date, August of 81, that's kind of um, getting ready to begin a school year, the end of a summer, and it so happens that our guest, Rob High, graduated from UC Santa Cruz in 1981. So he graduated about the time, just months before this device was released. And he went and joined up IBM. And for the last 36, 37 years, he has been in that organization, affecting what they're doing, watching it all happen. And, and, and if you think about it, just what a journey that must be. If you, ever, if you ever pay your respects to Elvis Presley and you see his tombstone, you will, you will see it says, he became a living legend in his own time. Now, I'll be the first to say that's a little redundant, right? He was either a living legend or a legend in his own time. That being said, if there's anybody who can be said to be a living legend in their own time, it's our guest today. It's Rob High. He is an IBM fellow. He is a VP at IBM, and he is uh, the chief technical officer of IBM Watson. And uh, he is with us today. Welcome to the show, Rob. Yeah, thank you very much, and I appreciate the, the references. But somehow, I think my kids would would uh, consider uh, those accolades to be, you know, probably not accurate. Well, but from a factual standpoint, you joined IBM in 1981 when the PC was brand new. Yeah, and, and, and I've had, I've been, I've, I've really been honored, you know, with having the opportunity to to work on some really interesting problems over the years, and and with that honor has come the responsibility to, you know, bring value to those problems to to the solutions that we have for those, those problems. And, and for that, I've always been uh, well-recognized. So, so I do appreciate uh, you bringing that up. In fact, it really is, uh, is more than just any one person in this world that, that makes changes uh, meaningful. Well, so walk me back to that. And, and, and don't worry, this isn't going to be a stroll on memory lane, but I'm curious. In 1981, IBM, you know, was of course immense as it is immense now. And the PC had to be a a kind of a, a tiny part of that at that moment in time. It was it was new. When did your when did your personal trajectory interact inter, inter, intercept with that, or or did it ever? Have you always been on the kind of the bigger system side? No, actually, it was almost immediate. Uh, it, I probably was you know I don't know exact number, but probably pretty close to the you know first um, one hundred or two hundred people that ordered a PC when it got announced. Uh, in in fact. You know, I, I, I 
the first thing I did in IBM was to take a PC into work and show my colleagues what, you know, what the potential was. I, I was just doing simple and silly things at the time, but, you know, I wanted to make an impression that this really was going to change the way that we were thinking about our roles at work and what technology was going to do to help, you know, change our trajectory there. So, no, I actually had the, the privilege of being uh, there at the very beginning um, I won't say that I had the foresight to recognize this utility, but I certainly appreciated it. And and uh, and I think that to some extent, my own career has followed the trajectory of change that has occurred similar to what PCs did to us back then uh, in other areas as well, including, you know, web computing and services orientation and now cloud computing and, and of course, cognitive computing. And so walk me through that. And then, and then let's let's jump into to Watson. So walk me through the path you went through as kind of this whole drama of the computer age unfolded around you. Kind of how where did you go from point to point to point through that to end up where you are now? Um, not long after I began work for IBM, uh, I, w- I had an opportunity to to take a role in the development of our ATMs, uh, automated teller machines in in our banking industry development organization, uh, I was, uh, I landed actually working on uh, how to do service and maintenance on these ATMs and writing software for, for uh, doing dumps on them. But um, actually it wasn't long after that that I had the chance to, to influence the thinking around the use of personal computers as the underlying engine for building these ATMs. Up until then, you know, the hardware, the underlying hardware was all proprietary to the problem of, of creating a, an automated machine, a machine that that uh, people can interact with, that provide teller functions. Uh, we saw the potential for other applications, and so we sort of shifted architectural thinking from being dedicated to ATMs to, to being more generally applicable to a variety of different self-service terminals. And we built that on PCs. Uh, we had uh, x86s at the time, uh, actually 8086s and 8186s, later 286s, and, and as that progressed uh, forward. Um, I was on a team that uh, tried to, to create a multi-threaded version of DOS so that we could manage the various I.O. functions that were being performed in the machine concurrently, whether that was reading your mag stripe or, or handling display updates or dispensing cash. You know, there was a lot of parallel processing that was needed for that. Later that led to working with the OS2 team, the kernel team to create, create a headless version of the multi-threaded operating system, which was later superseded by Windows. And then um, from there moved into other forms of banking services, including what I consider to be one of the first examples of an underlying middleware that at the time we called Application Foundation. That later led to my involvement in distributed object uh, programming, distributed systems and object programming within those kinds of distributed systems, uh, which later then led to a thing we called the SOM object server, which graduated into a thing called Component Broker, which later graduated to a thing that we now call WebSphere. Uh, I was involved with the creation of the very first component model, distributed component model um, uh, that, that later served as the foundation for uh, J2EE, Java 
to Enterprise Edition uh, EJBs, Enterprise Java Beans. The EJB specification was modeled after work that I did early on around a distributed component model. Uh, and then uh, from there, uh, led the Webster team, graduated from that to leading uh, our SOA foundation for IBM. Uh, realized that one of the key things to anything that we do in the area of technology is creating an association to value. Uh, business value, of course, is one of the key things we tend to measure, but you'd be valuing any sort. If it's not valuable to people, then, you know, doing the technology is really not worthwhile. And from that, I, I developed a, a premise that, you know, rather than technologists attempting to figure out how to adapt the technology to the value of the business, how about if business actually figured out how to adapt their needs to an expression of requirement on technology? And uh, that's not necessarily a novel idea, but I wanted to make that very practical. And so we started a project that I called BPSO, the Business Process Service Optimization, which I was in the middle of when they came to me to ask, ask me to take over as a CTO for Watson. Wow, what a, what a walk. So from, from PC DOS to OS2 to Java to web servers to, uh, to Watson. You know, ATMs are really an interesting use case because it was predicted they would, they would you know, destroy jobs. And, uh, and, and yet what we have today are more tellers than we had than when the ATM came out because the ATM lowered the cost of opening a bank branch, which meant banks opened more branches and needed more tellers. Yeah. Did, did you, do you think that's a dynamic we're going to see over and over again is, as artificial intelligence and as automation goes into different areas, it's actually going to create demand in new and surprising ways? That's actually a trend I believe has, that has occurred with virtually every new technology since you know the advent of creating technologies, uh, and creating tools. You know, I make the point often that you know some of the earliest tools, hammers and axes, and then later shovels and what became hydraulics and so and so forth. You know, all of those have sort of had the same fundamental char characteristic, which is they tend to extend and amplify our human strength. And that process of amplifying ourselves, amplifying the things that we do, you know, while it will change the nature of the work that we do, I mean, we're no longer scratching holes in the ground with our fingers, but, you know, we're able to then do so much more with that, that it opens up all kinds of possibilities and things that at the time that when we created the tool, we probably weren't thinking about. You mentioned earlier about the advent of the PC and how this changed, you know, our industry. I uh, think back even only just 10 years ago with the advent of smartphones and what that has done to change the nature of how we operate on a daily basis, just as individuals, as human beings. And I do think that the same effect is starting to occur here with AI. And, and while we can already see some of those benefits in terms of, you know, offloading some of the more mundane and tedious tasks that people perform so they can open their time to doing more creative things, I, I don't think that we, we know yet the extent to which um, we're going to find new uses, new utility, new value from this technology as we go forward. Yeah, I'm, and I'm in, I'm in total agreement with you on that, that one side of the equation, you know, oh my gosh, that, that job's been eliminated is, is really obvious and in the front, and that, oh my gosh, these 10 jobs are created down the line because of that. That's all kind of not obvious. And so you kind of just see the obvious half of the equation. And so I'm completely on board with you there. That being said, we do have cases 
um, where technology has had a dramatic effect on overall employment and negatively. I mean, you you cannot, you know, the 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 number one like case touted about oh my gosh automation's awesome is for ten thousand years it took ninety percent of us to grow our food and now it takes two percent. There's no question. There's less people in the food industry than there were a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, and ten thousand years ago. So that that happens. So what is your kind of um, in your head? How do you how do you paint the offset to that? How do you say yeah that happens, but we maintain full employment the whole time. So what do you think is kind of going on there for the dynamic that, that offsets even areas where automation does unequivocally eliminate sectors? Yeah. I mean, and one of the things that we should keep in mind here as we talk about this is that while you're, what you said is true, that it's a fraction of a percent of the number of, of you know, the percentage of the total number of people working in the food industry as a percentage of the population is a smaller the population itself is also growing at the same time. So I don't know where that, you know, lands in terms of the actual physical number of people. But that said, I mean, we do need to be mindful of that. We also have to be open to it and nothing is really ever as extreme as we, we tend to paint things there. I'm not going to discount the fact that there are, some people who will be doing what they were doing before. And that does happen. And when it happens, it can be very disruptive for those individuals. Uh, more often than not, what I'm seeing right now, at least in the case of AI, is that it doesn't really replace in, entire individuals. It doesn't sort of take and eliminate what that person um, does for you know, a company or anything else that they do. It does eliminate some of the tasks that they perform. And so, you know, an example of that would be in the call center, you know, we see call center agents that today um, are, you know, up until now have had to answer a wide range of questions that people ask when they get on the phone or get in through a contact channel. You know, everything from what are your hours of operation all the way through to, you know, hey, I've got this this product that I just bought and it's not working. I, I need help fixing it. And if you look at that range of problems that people present, there's a fairly large percentage of those problems which really are pretty tedious and mundane and don't bring a whole lot of satisfaction to anybody. I mean, you know, knowing what your hours of operation are, I don't know that I need another person there manning the telephone to tell me, you know, what time they're open. If I can look that up on the web, if I can look that up through, you know, an IVR or if I can get that through through a conversational agent, you know, not only does that help me as is needing and answer that question, get to the answer quicker. But for the person at the other end, you know, that's kind of a tedious and mundane question to have to deal with all day long if that's the only thing you're dealing with. If instead what you can, you know, if instead having something else answer those questions for you frees you up to now go work on really interesting problems. If I as a client have a problem and I begin with a fairly simple question that can be answered by a conversational agent, Eventually, I'm going to get to the more important, salient, and challenging question. If at that time I turn it over and talk to a human, you know that that call center agent not only is going to be able to address that issue in ways that today most AI systems aren't even capable of, but for them, you know, that they get to go home at the end of the day feeling they they did something really interesting, really useful. They helped somebody in a really meaningful way. For, for the consumer, that means they got their, their problem solved that much faster. Um, 
So there's kind of a win-win all the way around in a lot of these situations uh, that isn't really about people losing their jobs. It's about freeing them up and, and giving them the time and energy to go concentrate on more creative problems, creative issues, and exercise their own creativity in ways that they just simply couldn't before because of the amount of time they spent doing the tedious stuff. Fair enough. So to change the topic just a little bit, let's talk about transfer learning. So humans have this great ability that we can be trained on a sample size of one thing. I can show you an object you've never seen before, some weirdly shaped object, and I could say, find this object in all these photos, and the object could be partially obscured, it could be underwater, it could be covered with molasses, it could be chewed on by a dog, it could be any number of these things, and we're like, there it is, there it is, there it is, there it is. And machines, they they have it. They seem much more rigid and much more brittle. Mm-hmm. What, what are we doing there? What are we good at that we haven't figured out how to teach machines to be good at yet? Well, there's a degree of sophistication in you know in our human mind. You know, the, the both the structure of our human mind, the pathways of analysis that we execute. Um, there's just a degree of complexity and sophistication, sort of you know beautiful complexity, if you will that, you know, we hardly understand for ourselves, let alone have figured out how to replicate in computing systems. Um, you know, we talk a lot about neural nets in computing systems today as, as sort of an underlying technology for AI systems. But those neural networks that we're emulating in software, or sometimes now even hardware, are really, by comparison, very simplistic, very primitive. Um, and, and so, you know, a lot of this comes down to not having nearly enough complexity uh, in the computing system, let alone, you know, then trying to understand what kinds of complexities are important and valuable. And value, of course, is another big part of this is, is you know, where is the motivation that drives us to want to increase complexity when in doing so we also have to deal with you know, the consequences of that complexity. So I think a lot of this is just where we are in time. Some of it is around our basic level of understanding uh, and then a great deal of that will be determined over time by the economics of our field. I, I often ask my guests, if, if you hold a, a general intelligence out, so an AGI is this thing that we kind of intuitively know what that what it would be like interacting with that. You can have a conversation with it. It can, it can do a range of things a lot like a human can. And I often ask my guests, do you feel like our existing techniques that we have that have given us narrow AI, that have given us Watson, that have, have given us these amazing things, are those, are we on the way to that? Or is that thing, that AGI, that is that a completely different thing? And it only really shares the words artificial intelligence. That's kind of just a linguistic quirk. It has nothing really to do with the kind of stuff we're building today. What would you say? Well, first of all, I, I you know, there's been a you know historical debate about what people mean by AI, and I think in the early days, in in our you know naivety and hubris, we we tended to gravitate more towards this, as you said, intuitive notion 
the AI ought to be about replicating the richness and breadth of the human mind. That, you know, the way that von Neumann put it is, you know, there ought to be as many, um, uh, you know, computers ought to be able to answer as many questions as there are people to ask them, is, is what it's quoted as saying. Um, so I think that there was this perception that that computers ought to, and AI ought to lead us to, you know, sort of the same kinds of intelligence that we see in human beings. I think since then, what we've come to understand is two things. One is that um, it's really no longer about replicating the human mind for the, for, the, for the sake of replicating the human mind. It's really about doing things in computers that benefit human beings. And so I prefer the term augmented intelligence over artificial intelligence because I think that you know, comes closer to representing what's useful and meaningful. The other thing is, you know, I think we have a challenge in defining what intelligence is. And this, again, is another debate that I think has been going on for decades, is what is intelligence? And let's just assume that our own human intelligence could be clearly defined and quantified. Um, it, you know, first of all, that what we have um, established as human intelligence is really the product of, you know, of eons of evolutionary selection that, you know, that required us to create a certain way of thinking as a way of survival, as a matter of survival. I don't know that that's the kind of intelligence we would demand of a system, a computer that is, the, you know, intended to help us. In fact, if anything, what we want its intelligence to be is the kind of intelligence that we don't possess, the intelligence that, you know, is in that space beyond where humans tend to focus our attention, the thing that we're really good at. Um, and what's really needed is a form of intelligence that augments that, that amplifies that, that sort of, you know, does the things that we're not good at, like, you know, assimilating the relationships and the connections and information at massive scale. You know, we're just not good at that. Uh, you know, even our ability to recognize, which is, you know, the dominant uh, form of, of AI today is, you know, around recognition tasks. You know, a, a machine can see things at a level of resolution that our own human eyes cannot, that our own human brain can't really resolve. So, you know, there's places where, you know, we need help and we can benefit from that help where, you know, a machine can do certain things that not only are we not capable of doing, but we don't really have much interest in doing. And it's not about, you know, it's not about jobs problem. It's about, you know, how do we do our job better? Because we now have this tool available to us to help us do things that we couldn't do before. Yeah, it's it's true. We don't we don't have a consensus definition of intelligence. We don't have one of what we mean by artificial. We don't have a consensus definition of the word life, the word death, mm. the word um, uh, seeing, recognizing, understanding. We don't have a consensus definition of creativity. I mean, there are a lot of these things that only exist in nebulous concepts. That being said, it's interesting to me that science fiction doesn't just kind of predict the future it, in a way it makes it and mm -hmm. uh you know there was an x prize to make a tricorder mm -hmm. like uh, dr mccoy used and mm -hmm. you know ahura she used a bluetooth device any way you look at it that was a bluetooth device in her ear and and you see these things up on the screen and then uh and, and when i have people on the show they often tell me specifically with star trek they're inspired by it 
And more than once, people tell me, I want to build the enterprise computer. You can just ask it anything and it will answer it. And that, that is, uh, the, the enterprise computer didn't, you know, Major Barrett voiced it. It didn't really have any personality or anything. And then you go one step beyond that and they want to build data, commander data. And, you know, kind of the enterprise computer, but also had, quote, personality. That's a, it's a hard word since it's got the word person in it. So let me ask it a different way. Can we build the enterprise computer, which is the von Neumann machine that can answer any question? And can we build commander data? Could, could we? Will we? We seem, to, we seem to be wanting to because we, we build all these devices that, uh, you know, I, if, I, if I say any of their names, they're all sitting next to me and they'll perk up. But we have yeah. all these devices that we're building that seem to want to do that. So are we going to build that? So, so first of all, let me say that I think the task of being able to, to infer answers to questions based on, you know, doing, conducting a, a survey of literature is very real. I mean, that's, that's certainly, um, you know, approximately what Watson was doing on the game of Jeopardy was, was reading hundreds of millions of pages of literature and finding in that literature recorded evidence of answers that, that um, were applicable, that could be evaluated and measured against their applicability to the question being asked. Um, so that's, you know, so the answer to that clearly is yes. Uh, and whether that's done against literature or done against more structured sources, you know, the, the, that, that seems to have a lot of utility. Uh, it, if nothing else, it, it becomes sort of the next generation of what we used to think of as search, you know, instead of, you know, putting in keywords to get answers or potential sources of answers, you know, we're, we're now going to get to a point where we can simply ask a question and get those answers answered, this question answered from facts in literature. The, the, the next phase of progress, I think, is going to be around deductive reasoning, which is, you know, deriving answers, inferring answers, where the answer what was not previously recorded, but rather has to be kind of made up, if you will, um, constructed. Now, I expect that the vast majority of that will be centered around forms of deduction that, who, that rely on axioms that are relevant to a particular domain. So if I want to ask questions about the you know, probability of somebody you know, getting in you know, you know, rec you know, having an accident in their car and 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 having to claim damage. I mean, that's something that we've done typically from actuarial tables and other forms of predictive analytics using quantitative data. If we could add to that some of the qualitative aspects of life, whether that's you know knowledge about um, how people's emotions react to different um, weather circumstances and stuff like that, then we might be able to do even a better job applying those axioms to be able to answer the questions like, you know, is this person going to get in an accident today? Um, I think that where it becomes much more problematic to predict where this technology will go is when we start thinking about what we'll call abductive reasoning, which is the process of reasoning that generates those axioms. You know, what happened, you know, what happened, you know, eons ago, it caused somebody to realize that when adding two numbers together, you get a product that you get a sum that, that, you know, can be reliably um, produced over and over again, given two different pieces of information. You know, what were those axioms? How did that person come up with that axiom? How, you know, what was the process of generating 
the axiom of mathematics. And of course, I just gave you a simple example, but think about all the other more complex cases. You know, how does the doctor come to understand that, you know, when they see a patient with certain combination of symptoms, that they ought to be considering, you know, this test, that test, or coming to this diagnosis or another one, you know, there was a creative process involved there that um, I think still eludes us when we think about this from an AI standpoint. Now, you also ask, you know, should we expect that? You know, will we do that? And I think then we got to start thinking about economics and what's, what is valuable to people to have um, the AI system participate in. Because at the end of the day, people are not going to invest in creating these technologies beyond an academic consideration unless there is, you know, some way of creating value from the creation of the technology. And, uh, you know, people aren't going to pay for it, then they probably won't do it or they won't do it for very long. If people do pay for it, then they will. Or if it has some other sort of economic, and it's economic here very loosely because it doesn't necessarily have to be for financial gain. It can be for, you know, the gains and benefits that we get when we're able to form better and tighter relationships with each other or when we're able to, you know, increase our leisure or enhance our, our entertainment, whatever. I mean, there's there needs to be some sort of incentive that motivates the creation and, and sustaining of these technologies. And, uh, you know, we've seen history littered with lots of failed technology advances that, you know, that makes sense. I mean, go back to Star Trek, you know, certainly the flip phone, you could say, was a good approximation of the Star Trek communicator device. You know, you flip it up, and I think that I've seen stories where some of the early inventors of the flip phone were attempting to emulate that science fiction. But guess what? You don't see flip phones much anymore. We move beyond that. That particular technology, while it was inspired by um, our imagination, turned out not to have as much utility as being able to, you know, touch a screen and, and manipulate you know, the icons on that screen. Some of the use cases, though, for an artificial intelligence that can interact with people are... I mean, you gave the simplest one, which is a call center, to handle the simplest, most straightforward questions that that would, uh, you know, drive human crazy to do. And then, But you go to the other extreme of that, and it's um, caregivers for the elderly is often cited, and uh, daycare workers, and um, greeters, and I mean, all, all sorts of places where you would expect a human to find some amount of emotional engagement. Do you have any worries or qualms or concerns about giving um, these systems human voices, human names, and getting them to simulate human emotion, a la, say, how Weizenbaum ended up feeling about Eliza, that there's something inherently dishonest and misleading about doing that? Or, or is that not even something you think about? Uh, no, actually, I do think about this, and I am worried about that. I do believe that um, it is important that we be honest and transparent in both the delivery of these technologies, as well as in our demands of, of how we use them. Um, we, we formed with a number of other companies around this partnership for AI, through which we sort of debate some of these ethical issues. And certainly as a group, we've come to the conclusion that AI should not represent themselves. They should not attempt to pretend or, or masquerade um, 
to the end user as being another human being. Now, that's not to say they won't take on some anthropomorphic properties because there is a benefit that comes from when you're trying to communicate with human beings to be able to do so in a way that people you know, recognize um, as having meaning. I mean, for example, when you and I are talking as human beings, you know, it's not just our words that we're exchanging. We're amplifying and punctuating those words with inflection and, our, in, and intonation and cadence in our, in our vocalization of those words. Or if we were in person, you know, we might also be feeding off of each other's body language or eye, eye contact and, you know, facial expressions and arm and hand movements and all those things sort of help human beings understand the meaning and intent behind the words. Um, so there may be some anthropomorphisms that get engaged, but the net result should not be to suggest that, you know, any of these, these digital assistants, these conversational agents are in fact human and no one should ever be misled into believing that what they're interacting with is a human being when in fact what they're dealing with is a digital agent. The thing about Weizenbaum, though, is he, everybody knew Eliza was a robot. I mean, he wasn't concerned about like full disclosure, not a robot, but a bot. He wasn't concerned about full disclosure. He said, even fully knowing it, you project all of this onto them because they have a name and they, it's like you might treat an intelligent agent one way if it's personified in a human and a, you would you might treat it a completely different way if it were personified as a giant walking banana because <laughs> as a human you give it all of this like cred you you assume it feels and it cares and it and it you just project all this stuff onto it and That's right. and <laughs> and so you can 12 ways to sunday tell everybody i'm a robot you know it could be wearing a shirt that says i'm i'm a robot but if it looks human enough and sounds human enough, people will still, you know, I, I guess, I guess what I'm saying is I notice that when I interact with even the very rudimentary devices I have now, and uh, one of them is going off and telling me like way more than I want to know. I'm like, stop, <laughs> you know, a way I would never talk to a person. And I wonder if that has a numbing effect on, on human empathy and human, the way we interact with, with humans. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you another you know example of why this is important, and that is uh, th there's there's a group of, of people in our society today. I think oftentimes we associate associate them with being millennials, but I don't know that it's limited to that. You know, there's certain there's certain people who almost to some extent prefer to deal with a, a digital you know um, uh, endpoint as opposed to human because of the anonymity that it represents. And so, you know, not only do they want the assurance that what they're dealing with is not a human being because it gives them some comfort in, in that anonymity, uh, you know, but also if there were that reassurance, they wouldn't want to be fooled into anything otherwise. In other words, you certainly wouldn't want then for a human being to jump on the line and continue the conversation without that, end user knowing that they've now switched from a non-human endpoint to now a human. Um, so it goes both ways. And I, you know, it's something that we got to be conscious of and something that again, as us, as providers of technology, IBM, I'm speaking of here as people who 
integrate these technologies into their solutions, which oftentimes are other people, as well as, of course, the end users. You know, we as a human, as end users of these technology, as consumers of these technology, you know, all of us play a role, and we ought to sustain our responsibility in ensuring that this technology is being used appropriately, that it's transparent about what it is, that it is that we're demanding it be you you know provided to us in a way that that reinforces that and you know if 12 ways to sunday is not enough to make that clear then you know add another 13 14 i don't know how many different ways you have to say it but keep on reinforcing it what you're dealing with here is a conversational agent at this point in time or later from the conversation you switch over to human what you're dealing with now as a human and and just make it very, very clear to people so that both they don't get a nerd, but more importantly, they don't get um, they don't get fooled into believing something they shouldn't. What was your involvement, if any, in uh, Kasparov and Deep Blue? I didn't. I didn't have any involvement with that. Well, I, had I, meet, I had the opportunity to meet Gary the other day. Uh, at a, I saw that on on your LinkedIn. That's why I was asking. Yeah. yeah. No, I was at a uh, at a uh, speaker session where um, Francesca Rossi, Dr. Rossi from our team, who actually leads a lot of our ethical discussions, uh, she and Gary Kasparov had a chance to uh, speak together. Well, I, I, you're undoubtedly, of course, quite familiar with this. So I just want to ask you two brief questions about it. So one, Kasparov said at the time, at least uh, Deep Blue didn't enjoy beating him. Do you think that uh, someday a computer will enjoy beating a human? I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't really want to predict that because, frankly, I don't even know what that means. Um, and again, I would fall back on my earlier comment. I mean, why would we? Uh, why would we ever create a system that was, you know, even simulating that that sense of awareness? You know, what kind of economic value does that really deliver? And frankly, I can't find one. So. Well, I guess there's two answers to that. I mean, we don't necessarily have to exhaust all that. One is that it's an emergent property that would just happen on its own, mm. but, and you know, that, that that's what emotions are. And second, um, somebody's going to do it for no economic value. Somebody's going to do it just for the intellectual challenge of, of it of it all. Yeah, but we'll that, see how it how yeah, it all that, that very well maybe yeah. Excuse me for interrupting, but yeah, that's right. I mean, there's lots of academic activities that are exploring areas in this space, but. You know, first of all, reinforce that they're they're long ways away from getting there, and um, it, and none of what I've seen so far at all suggests that it's going to be able to achieve that as an emergent capability. But even if it does get done, you know, academically, I'm not. You know, Fair that doesn't mean that's going to have any utility in our world. And then my second Kasparov question is: In the end, Kasparov conclu- Kasparov concluded that a human. So you you said you prefer augmented intelligence of artificial. And Kasparov said, in the end, the best chess player is kind of a computer that makes a suggested move and a human who kind of evaluates it and chooses it to move or not. But it's this kind of human in partnership with a, uh, uh, an AI. Do you think that's really true or is that just kind of a, 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 a fictional detente that we kind of tell ourselves to, to at least to get through this transition period without having to deal with the fact, no, the machine's just better at playing chess than any human who's ever lived. No, I, I believe it is. A, it's, it is really the practical way of thinking about 
um, how this world evolves, how this world of technology and AI evolve. Um, you know, nobody built a shovel for the sake of pleasing other shovels. Uh, and, and so I don't see how or why we would expect that that would be any different with this technology. You know, these things will um, take shape. They will be, you know, they will be influenced and they will, in some sense, their, their evolution, their technological evolution will be uh, driven by where we get value from them. And if we're not, we as humans are not getting value from it, we're not likely to sustain any investment in it. And if we do get value from it, then, you know, we will, we, we will invest in, people will invest in, in creating this thing. They will be sustained, but that ultimately will be shaped by a balance between the utility we get and the implications that that, that utility has on other aspects of life. And, and the same thing's happening. You see it even now with some of the discourse that's occurring in the use of smartphones. And, you know, we're recognizing that all of the advantages and benefits and, and utility that we get from smartphones also come to, at a cost, which is, you know, besides next train, a lot of broken relationships and, you know, lack of good conversation at dinner tables and stuff like that. And so I think there'll be a bit of a, a reconciliation of that. And, uh, and we'll see that be tempered into some sort of equilibrium. So presumably, though, you were involved in uh, the Jeopardy match. Uh, no, not directly. I actually was uh, engaged in the team um, after that, uh, after the uh, Jeopardy match had actually been performed. But in doing so, I had the opportunity to spend a lot of time with that team and learned a lot from them. And, and well, let me ask you two questions about that, if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them is, um, you know, Ken Jennings, I don't know if you've seen his TED Talk on the topic, but he basically says that that there, there was this graph that they used to email him like every week, and it it, it showed, uh, you know, a dot where he was, and it showed it showed Watson like dot 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 coming towards it week by week by week by week, and he yeah. said that's what the future looks like. It isn't the Terminator hunting you down. It's 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 a machine just getting a little better, a little better, a little better, doing that thing that that is that thing you do best. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think? On that team, there was ever any doubt that eventually the machine would win, or was it an open question at at one point? There's a oh, there certainly was open questions along the way. Um, I know that historically, if nothing else, you can read that in in uh, 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 some of the books that have been written about uh, Stephen. You know, for example, Stephen Baker wrote a book uh, that chronicled some of the development work that went on there. You can see where the team had self-doubt along the way. Even, I, I will tell you, even on the day of the match, um, there was no certainty that Watson was going to win that game. If you, if you recall, you know, the first day, the match on the first day, um, uh, Watson did okay, kind of held the zone. The second day, it actually, um, it, it looked like it was going to lose. It, it actually got behind significantly. And then, of course, on the third day, it came back. And, and some of that is just simply due to the variability of the human experience. You know, how good were the players, the contestants on that day? What were the topics that were coming up in the subject and how well were they um, in line with what they knew? And, in, and even though, you know, Watson had ingested 200 million pages of literature, that didn't mean that it knew everything. 
uh, even Wasn't has some limitations. So no, I think that even then there was some doubt. Now you know it, it achieved about 83, 85% um, accuracy, which put it right there in what we call the winner's cloud, uh, which gave it a really good fighting chance. And I think if we were to build the technology again using a modern technique, it might even be a little bit better. But remember, well, what it was really good at was trying to find information in the literature and associate that with the question being asked. And, and that's a fairly narrow task. While we like to think that it was better than Ken and Brad at that task, that doesn't mean that it was better than Ken and Brad, because Ken and Brad as humans are better in many other ways. So, um, you know, it was just around that one specific slice of their life. This is probably not um, an answerable question, but you know, the, the answer that's always quoted in the, um, in the articles about it is, what is a meringue harangue? Watson's answer. Do you think that's a creative answer? Would you would you in would you project creativity onto um, Watson, or is that no different than what's two plus two and Watson says four? Is it is it is there nothing about that answer that's particularly different than a than two plus two? Well, I mean, even a blind monkey gets painted every once in a while. Um, the some of this is is um, some of this is purely you know random you know things that occur. Um, which, by the way, I should point out, I think a lot of human ideas tend to be kind of random as well. Uh, so there, there's, you know, there is some, some utility in being able to come up with, um, with novel representations of information. Um, but, you know, no, I mean, I think it was in that particular case, it was a little bit closer to, to, executing exercise in the axioms because it was simply deriving that from what was available to it in the, in the literature. So one more question about this, and I would love to, to get an update on Watson and, and where you see it heading. So I don't know how long ago it was, but Danny Hillis made a computer that never lost a game of tic-tac-toe, but he made it entirely out of yarn and tinker toys. And then computers mastered checkers and they mastered chess with Kasparov. And then, uh, you know, Jeopardy, and then uh, Go, Alpha Go, and then Poker, they're beating top-ranked poker players. Games are an interesting spot because, you know, they have confined rules and winners and losers and points and all these other things. Is, what, is there another game for computers to kind of beat humans at that is next on that? Or, or is Go kind of the – is it the ultimate or is it merely the penultimate uh, <laughs> sort of like difficult human game that – a or are we kind of past? Yeah, they can they can kind of beat us at anything. I think that so, so I think there's strong indications that when the problem being solved is really tightly defined, where the rules of the problem have no ambiguity to it, where the outcomes have no ambiguity, where it's clear that whether somebody did or did not win or lose. Anything like that, there's strong indication it's technology to the point where it can, you know, sooner or later will be able to um, contest and win at any of those kinds of situations. Um, and that's useful from, a, again, an academic standpoint. I think it helps us kind of test out new technologies. I will also point out that rarely in life are our everyday experiences so well-defined uh, 
well, let me say it even more strongly, um, almost, it, so nothing that I do on a daily basis, um, nothing that I do, nothing that most of us do are um, that well-defined. Even when we think the rules are well-defined, we find that even the rules themselves have interpretation. There's judgments being applied to that. Uh, and even then, those judgments can change over time depending on who you're dealing with or, or the circumstances. You know, that's why we have you know, a court system is a pre-court system because their responsibility basically is to interpret the meaning behind the rules, whether those are laws of the Constitution. And so, um, you know, it just sort of goes to show that those kinds of games, while certainly I think that's every indication that, that computing systems will be able to exceed at those kinds of games, um, we should recognize them for what they are. They're just games. So... Give us an update, as it were, on on Watson. Um, what what? How is it knocking it out of the park? What what is being done? What are the new challenges? What are the new milestones? Kind of just yeah. tell us that whole Watson story, please. Yeah. Well, I mean, so first of all, we continue to make tremendous advances in the accuracy of our recognition services, whether that's visual recognition or speech recognition or or intent recognition in, in uh, language. Uh, so that that has been, um, you know, a really nice thing to to look at, look upon, look back on. Um, where, where I think that there's going to be more progress and, and some advances that will be interesting and meaningful is in the depth of the kinds of conversations that um, people can create with these conversational agencies in our conversational service. Uh, specifically where there's a lot of interest and, and focus right now is how in a conversational agent we can move beyond simply answering the question asked or performing the task that was, um, was expressed to, you know, beginning to get behind the problem, you know, to get to the thing that led to that question. You know, an example of this is if, you know, if I come to a conversational agent and I, and I ask, you know, what is my account balance? That may be something I need to know, but that's really not my problem. My problem is, you know, getting ready to buy something or I'm trying to figure out how to, you know, save it for my kid's education. You know, there's something behind that. And I think a conversational agent that is able to recognize that there's something more in, in has the ability to engage in a deeper conversation that gets behind that will bring more utility to those people who use conversational agents. It will be it'll enable these conversational agents to help um, people in ways that today most chatbots are kind of constrained by. Um, so I think we're seeing a you know a whole new range of utilities starting to open up around these conversational agents. Uh, and then of course, the other big area of, of advancement is around uh, knowledge, knowledge representation, um, knowledge exploration and discovery, and how that then is, is opening up what I think of as the long tail of the types of questions that people want to ask and get answered. And so put, put some, 
some meat on those bones. So we would hear stories about, oh, Watson has, uh, you know, has matched the, 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 the prognosis or the, di- not the diagnosis, but the, um, the treatment plan for cancer patients. And it, in 30% of cases, it had something additional to add. Like, how are, give us some like, real world examples of how the technology is being applied in the real world and working. I think where we're going to see the greatest benefit in, you know, the use cases that will benefit the most from this, for the, from the improving degree of, of knowledge um, evaluation will be in any, any role where your responsibility is essentially to do research, right? That could be in the form of, of medical research and financial product research and product evaluation uh, anywhere we're in, where when what we're trying to do is um, get below the surface of the knowledge as stated in whatever literature we're depending upon, um, where where the associations between knowledge that are either explicitly stated or implied um, now become relevant to our understanding. So. Let's take this into financial advisory services, for example. Today, most financial advisors rely on research that you know make judgments about the, the usefulness of one financial product or another based predominantly, in many cases, exclusively on quantitative analysis, right? Quantitative data. So looking at you know past performance, looking at the number of shareholders in that in that investment, um, looking at, you know, its basic risk pro- profile in different economic conditions. You know, all these things are quantitative and are, are evaluated today using quantitative analytics. What, what oftentimes is missing is any evaluation of the qualitative space. So how did that, how will that, um, that investment be affected by events that are only just now being discussed in the news, for example, or in some, you know, you know, some county or city council um, meeting, you know, those kinds of knowledge sources, which, you know, we as humans rely on heavily, we, you know, we'll, we won't hesitate to go look up in the, in the newspaper and use an article that we found there to quickly judge whether somebody is going to be affected by that. If somebody, you know, if there was a discussion at the city council about, you know, some new water treatment plant being, you know, being created, then we know that it's going to have some kind of economic impact on the businesses and the residents in, in, in the area immediately surrounding that, that water treatment plant. Um, now using these, cognitive systems, using natural language understanding, and being able to evaluate the relationships between different entities, we begin to focus that, factor that into some of these investment decisions. And so what, if, if you, if, if there's an enterprise, a CEO of an enterprise out there listening right now, and, and he or she has a company that's, um, a thousand people and they make stuff and they make a product and they ship it and they have customers and they have all of these things is 
would would it be a fair bet in your mind that they have business problems like that, like you just described, that Watson can can inform on buried somewhere in the data in their organization or not? There are there's a vast quantity of information that organizations today collect or have access to that is going untapped. Um, you know, most organizations for that kind of information rely on, you know, the humans in the organization to go out and read all that material and keep up with it and, you know, and make sense of it all. And in some organizations, you know, they either employ a lot of people to do that or in many cases, most cases, they, they simply don't have the staff to keep up with it. So as a result, all that information is just flowing by them um, unused, unvalued. And uh, that's a place where, you know, Watson and, and AIs can now begin to bring some advantage. And, and they ought to be paying attention to that. And you feel it's it's time for just kind of a, again, if there's somebody listening and they uh, aren't necessarily, quote, a high-tech company, it's still, we're, we're now at that, that point in Watson and AI's life cycle that, that they should already be thinking about these things now or yeah yeah first of all you know the tools have gotten to the point where you don't need to be a data scientist to be able to make use of them uh the the these things are a journey you know you're not going to you're not going to suddenly turn on ai and it, it, it immediately affect the outcome of your business uh but you know if you don't begin that journey then you don't get to that point where you get um an inflection in that kind of return, that kind of result. So, you know, getting the journey started, getting, you know, leveraging what's there, even if it's in a minor way for the minor value that it brings, gets you on a path where over time as you grow that, grow your understanding of it, grow your, um, your, your use of it will then eventually start to pop up as very measurable, difference in how your business performs. So now's the time to get started. Um, it's feasible, it's viable, it works. The tools are good. The, the, the skills are out there now to, to that you can tap into. There's lots of help if you need it. Uh, and uh, the sooner you get started, the sooner you get down that journey. And by the way, you know, chances are if you're not doing it, you know, your competition is. And, you know, and if they get started, not only are they going to get advantage from it, but they're also going to get ahead of the curve on you because um, they've got that journey started. Well, that is a great place to leave it, a call to action with, uh, with, with great potential and a little, little ominous overtone as well. So <laughs> I want to thank you so much, Rob, for a fascinating hour. You, uh, I, I have my list of, of questions I want to talk to you about. I didn't even make it through half of them. And so uh, it's it's fascinating, and you're a fascinating guy. And anytime you want to come back, we would love to have you on the show. Thank you, Byron. Appreciate that. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, Byron Reese hosts another podcast about AI called the AI Minute. Every day, it's a minute or two of daily reflections about AI. It's available wherever you find your podcast of choice. And in addition, it's an Alexa skill. So it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.